a pleasure to, to have him. Um, I would say he's a prolific author because um, he's got, I think it's over 20, 20 books, something like that right now. Um, I, he and his wife, Marilyn, live in Littleton, Colorado. Uh, he's a minister, and they've served the Lord for over 50 years, he was telling me. I think one of the, the books that everybody recognizes is this book right here, Biblical Eldership. Um, I do know even outside of the assemblies, uh, churches who have uh, elder, I'll say elders as the leaders in their church, use this book as a, as a guide or a template or one of their books. So um, I think it's recognized not only in assemblies but outside of that. Uh, hopefully you all got an outline when you came in um, so that the messages this weekend are all from Acts, Acts chapter 20. And I think they're loosely based, based off your latest latest book. Which I'll have tomorrow. I okay. To bring it tonight. Okay. So we have copies tomorrow. Blame Dickie for that. Okay. <laughs> All right. She probably rushed you out of the house. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, so without further ado, I'll, uh, Brother Alex can come up. Nice to be with you all tonight, and Ryan and I were trying to guess, maybe there's someone here with a photographic memory, was it 10 years ago I was here? Anyone here remember? About 10 years ago? And uh, look how quickly the years went by. Seems like yesterday, doesn't it? (laughs) Some of you may not know, but I go back in my early Christian life with uh, um, Evan and Juanita Davis. I was raised in Newark, New Jersey, non-Christian parents, and we, uh, my dad was a World War II veteran, and like all World War II veterans, they worked very, very hard to get out of the city, and we left for the country um, when I was about 11 years of age, and uh, we went to a beautiful place, with lots of forests and streams, and we just, I don't know how I got through school, we just hunted and fished and spent all day in the woods doing no homework or anything. And a friend of mine said, I'm going to a camp in New York State, Pine Bush Bible Camp. I don't know if he even said Bible, but he said, maybe you could go with me. So I asked my parents, he said, oh, yeah, two weeks up in the Catskill Mountains going to a camp. Oh, I just thought we we're going to fish all day, which we did. And didn't, I don't know why they didn't throw us out of camp. And when I went to Pine Bush Bible Camp, it was the very first time I heard the gospel. And it's interesting, the very first time I heard Christ died for my sins, I believed. Just like that. I'd never had any resistance to the gospel at all. Went back home for the next three years. I went back to camp. Backslid every time I went home. But I know I was saved that first time. So my parents wouldn't let me leave our church, which they never went to. But my dad said it's bad luck not to go to church when you're young. And I didn't want any more bad luck. So finally, when I was about 16, they let me leave uh, their church, supposedly. And uh, uh, Juanita's father was Mr. Everett Pickett. Maybe any of you ever get to meet him. Wonderful, wonderful man. Every Sunday morning, Sunday evening, every Wednesday night, he and his wife and the children, Patty uh, Pickett being one of them, uh, Juanita's uh, sister, who I think many of you met, came to pick me up every Sunday faithfully uh, for a number of years and take me to the local assembly. First time, in fact, I'm going to talk about this, saw a Bible-believing church where people actually carried Bibles. Church I went to, if you said Thessalonians, they wouldn't know what you're talking about. 
Well, anyway, <clears throat> through uh, the ministry of Juanita's dad and mom and others in that assembly having me to their home, I started really starting to grow as a Christian rather than just not move forward, which shows the need for discipleship for new believers. New believers need to be taught because you don't even realize how ignorant they are. I never opened a Bible, and I hate to tell you this, but I read the New Testament backwards. I saw Matthew and Mark, and they were too big. I, I saw Jude, I said, I can read Jude. And then Third John and Second John, I read the New Testament backwards, and you might say I've been backwards ever since. But that's actually true. Got my first Bible at the camp. Well, anyway, it's very hard to uh, imagine this, but no one has written a book on Acts 20. You say, well, what, who cares about Acts 20? Well, that's Paul's final words to the Ephesian elders. One of the great mountain peak passages for church leadership. And if you look at your outline, I called it an extraordinary meeting. Extraordinary meeting. We want to talk about this extraordinary meeting. And so I've wanted to actually do a book on this for years. Finally, I got to it about three years ago. And because of COVID, I was able to get a lot more done than normally because everything shut down. So there are blessings even to COVID. An extraordinary meeting. Now, if you have your Bible, it would be very good if you followed me with the notes and your Bible. Tonight, we'll get to verse 24. You will see how rich this passage is. There actually should be 10 or 12 books on this. Uh, Paul's uh, final marching order to the leaders of the church. It's almost as if people uh, don't know it exists. Very strange. Acts 20, verse 17. And now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house. Testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Now we'll stop at this verse. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So if you look at your outline, an extraordinary meeting. God's given, given us a great gift in this uh, wonderful sermon by Paul to the Ephesian elders. Although it's 2,000 years old, it is as relevant today for every church as it was when Luke recorded it, and we'll see that very, very clearly. There's really nothing else comparable to this in the New Testament, where you have the great apostle to the Gentile churches meet with the first elders of one of the first churches and tell them, this is what is going to happen in the future. This is what you must do. 
They're given their final marching orders. Now, let me give you just a little bit of background so when we get into the text, it'll make much more sense. Uh, Paul labored as a missionary in the city of Ephesus for three years, 52 to 55 A.D. These were some of his most fruitful years of ministry. Luke records, all of the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks, Acts 19.10. But they were also some of the most difficult years. Paul says he had many adversaries. He was almost killed on several occasions. Now, Ephesus becomes one of the most important churches in the New Testament. It becomes an epicenter of early Christianity, like Jerusalem, Antioch, and Rome. But Ephesus became a missions center. From Ephesus, he sent out these men throughout Asia Minor to deliver the gospel. Now, while he was in Ephesus for three years, longest period of time in one place, settled place, he worked with a group of men called elders or overseers. They knew Paul intimately and he knew them intimately. So he was not talking to strangers. He was talking to um, co-workers in the gospel. After three years of being in Ephesus, he heads uh, west to revisit his churches in Corinth and Thessalonica and Philippi. You can read about this in Acts and Second uh, Corinthians. He has gone from Ephesus about a year and a half when he and a group of representatives from the Gentile churches collected a large offering and headed from Corinth back to Jerusalem to deliver this sum of money to the poor in Jerusalem. On his way back, he stops at the port city of Miletus and he summons the elders to come from Ephesus to meet him. Now, when you read this speech, you realize his very high view of the church elders and their indispensable role to protect the church from the arch enemy of the church of Jesus Christ, which is the false teacher. Every new generation has to a fresh look at this passage and make it their own and understand this is a prophetic apostolic prediction of the future. Wolves are coming from without and from within. Do you think that's true? Some people must not think it's true. Now, it's very interesting how he starts this message. We call it here in your notes, a role model to imitate. When the elders arrive, Paul begins his message by reminding them what they already knew about his life and ministry. Nothing new here. He said, you yourself know. Three times he says this. You yourself know your past experience with me, how I lived, how I acted, what I taught. What he is saying to them, he is calling them to follow his, his example. He says the same thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now, it's a very important verse. We'll not take the time. You'll be given the book tomorrow. But I go through all the passages where Paul says, Imitate me. Follow me. Look at my example. Do what I have done. But 1 Corinthians 11, 1 is one of the key passages. Be imitators of me. 
as I am of Christ. Now, that could be looked at as a statement of pride, isn't it? Hey, follow me. Look at me. Do what I do. Well, no, it's not a statement of pride because he's following Christ. And there's nothing more important to Paul than people follow Christ. If you go through the Gospels, people are called to be followers. Remember this. We are first and foremost followers, not leaders, not teachers. We're first and foremost followers of a great master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why he said, you have no other teacher but me. You may be the greatest Bible teacher alive, but you only teach what Jesus taught. If you teach anything of your own thing, you have uh, departed from the Lord. We have one job to teach what Jesus taught. Not what we think or our new clever ideas. And that's how all false teaching starts. So, follow me, imitate me, I'm imitating Christ, and that's my goal for you. In chapter 4 of the same book, he says, I urge you then, be imitators of me, and that's why I sent to you Timothy. The same is true for us. There is nothing more important for us than to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Loyal followers, faithful followers. Not choosing what we want to do or not do, but be a follower. I want to remind you of this. Much of life is imitation. How do your children learn to speak? Where do they get their values? Where do they get their voice? Intonations. Where do they get it from? Watching dad and mom. If you knew my father, you'd say, oh, Alex, he's just like his father. And it's true. Because that's what I saw the first years growing up, my father. And... Like father, like son. People are watching us. We don't even realize how many people are watching each one of us. We are all to be role models. John Wooden, a legendary basketball coach, is known for making this wonderful statement. The most powerful leadership tool you have is your personal example. Let me read that again because it's good. And that's what this whole passage is. Paul holds up his example. Follow my example. The most powerful leadership tool you have is your personal example. That goes for your children, your grandchildren, your spouse, those around you. Let me try to illustrate the, the power of human example. And we are all to be influencers of those around us. I understand that every person has a minimum of 75 people in their circle of life. Minimum. So you have family, you have people at church, people at work, people in the neighborhood. Some of you have hundreds of people in your circle of influence. They're watching you. They don't even know they're watching you, but they are watching you. And we are to be the Christ-like example for them. So let me show you the power of example. And this goes back to my testimony. I can go back now, in my mind... 62 years ago, when I first met the Pickett family, Juanita and Evan, at a little, 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 little Elizabeth Gospel Chapel, small little church. Now, I don't remember a single sermon. I'm sorry. Now, it doesn't mean I didn't learn something. Yes, I did learn things. But I don't remember a single sermon. But do you know, 62 years later, I can, in my mind, recall... The very first time I walked into a Bible-believing church and seen people come in with their Bibles. You know how you have to hold your Bible this way, by the way, if you don't know that. Big black Schofield Bibles. They seemed at that time very big to me. I remember how much they loved the Bible. 
And I remember this particularly, how those people knew their Bibles. You could quote almost any place in the New Testament and they'll tell you, well, it's on this page over here in the right-hand corner, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2. It's right up here in the right-hand corner and you'd see their Bible all be marked. I remember that. I remember how they sang. I remember in the Lord's Supper how they prayed with such passion. I remember how they dress, how they loved each other. I think, again, going back to Mr. and Mrs. Pickett and their family picking me up. What loyalty and families having me over. Some of those young people became lifelong friends. I can see it very vividly in my mind. Why? Because example is powerful. Your example, your influence is more powerful than you understand. You say, well, I don't do that much. I come to church faithfully every week. I help what I can. People are watching you and you don't realize they're seeing what a faithful Christian does. You might not think it's much, but the young people see you, children see you, and it's being recorded in their thick heads. Much more is in there than we realize. And this is why Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 3, be examples to the flock. Don't domineer the flock. Be examples because example is what really affects people. What good is your words if you don't have the example behind it? Paul led by example and he called people to follow. And he was a follower. We're first followers before we're leaders or teachers. He would remind us today, never underestimate the extraordinary power of your personal life example to influence and inspire others People positively for God. You are more influential than you realize. So here's Mr. Everett Pickett, Mrs. Pickett. He wasn't a speaker. He wasn't uh, in any sense an intellectual. But why do I remember him? His simple service to Christ and his love for me. In fact, when I saw him after many years, I almost started bawling, crying. I hadn't seen him for decades. Just a godly man. Faithful man, servant man, you have more influence than you realize. Use that for God. People are watching you. So let's say I got into a fight with a brother at the church. This is a half true story. Not true story, but a half true story. I don't want to tell you the whole story because someone might identify it. Who knows who's listening? So this man comes up to me and he's right in my face. Very angry over something the young people did. Right in my face. I can feel the spit hitting me in the face. And he curses at me. Maybe he pushes me. My children are there. Wife's there. Some elders are there. People are watching. And I I start screaming back at him. And I curse him. And I push him back. And I'm going to sue you. I got a good lawyer and all this. What do you think my wife, my grandchildren, my children, and my fellow elders, what do you think they're going to think of me? Well, their estimate of me is going to go down, down, down. They're going to be embarrassed for me. I lost control of myself. But let's say, I say, brother, this is no way to handle a Christian brother. We need to meet later and talk. And I I don't, I, I respond very quietly very respectfully, we need to talk later. What is their estimate of me going to be? Gonna up, up, up. Ah, good old Alex, the way he handled that right. People are watching. They're watching you, how you handle things. You're being watched all the time. Not to mention that God's watching you. 
You're an influencer. Every one of you, you're an influencer. You have a circle of people, a niche of people no one else has. Paul says, follow me because I'm following Christ. And that's what he says at the beginning here. You know how I lived among you. Look at my example. Three years, you watched me. I handled some pretty heavy things. Now follow it. Follow it. Now, when he talks about his example, he, he recalls three special aspects of his life he wants them to remember. Number one, your outline. Serving the Lord with all humility. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility. Paul calls upon his beloved friends to remember his life example. But what is it he wants them to remember? I serve the Lord with all humility. Note what Paul rehearses here. He does not talk about his many expansive travels, his brilliant intellect, his indomitable zeal, his heavenly visions, extraordinary miracles or divine authority. No, he doesn't mention any of those things. He says something that we wouldn't expect. Remember how I serve the Lord with all humility. This sets the tone for the rest of the sermon. Sets the tone for his whole ministry. Now, serving the Lord is the regular Greek verb for serving as a slave. You can have a verb to serve as a servant or Stuart, but he uses the word here, slave. Serving the Lord as a slave. In fact, in some of his letters, he calls himself a slave. From the time he had that life-transforming experience on the Damascus Road, he considered Jesus Lord and himself a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Very important verse. I hope you know it. Second Corinthians four five. For what we proclaim is not ourselves. He wasn't a braggart. Look at all I've accomplished. For what we proclaim is not ourselves. It's not, not a man who just talks about himself all the time. Watch out for people always talking about themselves. But Jesus Christ is Lord. That's his message. Jesus is Lord of the universe. With ourselves as your servants, or literally slaves, for Jesus' sake. I want to read that again. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. I wonder if you ever viewed yourself as a slave for Jesus. Slave to others. The best servants are those who see themselves as servants and as slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. The scripture says, but you're not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your bodies. We've been purchased. We're slaves, and we're happy slaves and willing slaves, because he's a great master to serve. Now he says, with all humility, it's the only way to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, the only proper attitude of a slave is humility, isn't it? Humility is a distinctive Christian virtue. It's part of imitating Christ. Philippians chapter 2. Humility permeated Paul's actions, his words, 
his attitudes, his teaching, his interaction with his fellow workers, and his leader-follower relationships. With all, no, not just humility, with all humility. It penetrated every part of his life, his speech, his actions. You would have to say he was a humble man. Brilliant, successful in the gospel, but humble, first and foremost. Now, why is, uh, why is humility so important? Well, let me give you some virtues of what a humble leader would be like. A Christ-like, humble attitude would make a leader more teachable, more approachable, more receptive to constructive criticism. It makes him better able to see his own limitations and failures, better able to submit to and work with others, better qualified to deal with the sins and failures of other people. A humble leader is less defensive, less prone to fight, quicker to reconcile differences, more at ease in personal relationships. A humble soul enjoys promoting the gifts and the popularity of other people, is not jealous or envious of others' accomplishments. Only with the attitude of all humility can we possibly serve in a Christ-like way. Humility should characterize our life. When people look at us, if they say, well, that guy's so arrogant, so full of himself, talk, talk, talk about himself all the time, Something's really wrong there. We're not Christ-like. And we're to be imitators of Christ. Who humbles himself even to the point of death on a cross. What Paul is doing here is at the same time warning against the universal temptation many church leaders have. Pride of position, pride of title, pride of knowledge, pride of giftedness. Every, I don't know, it's 10 to 15 years, they have what's called the Lausanne Conference. Uh, it's a conference of missions. Uh, at the last Lausanne Conference in 2010, over 5,000, uh, you have to go by invitation only. And they pick mission leaders, key leaders, in every single country of the world. This is the third Lausanne Conference in 2010. We had one of our, the Pasquales were there, uh, chosen. Some of the CMML leaders would have been there. And they try to assess the broad, Bible-believing, evangelical world. And it is a very wide world. And they try to make statements of observations. How are we doing in evangelism? How are we doing in discipleship? How are we doing as Christians? And one of the statements made by the committee of the Lausanne Conference on World Missions agreed that lack of humility among pastors was a worldwide harm to believers spiritually and needed to be urgently addressed. That's not good. When Christian leaders from every country of the world have to unitedly say, pride of pastors is a hurtful thing to believers. Abuse of authority, abusing people, it's far more common than you realize. Well, how does Paul start, start his address? You know, I serve the Lord with all humility. It saturated everything I didn't said. That's what should be said of us. That's what we should emulate. Then, serving the Lord with tears. 
Now, in the military, a very important word is preparedness. Preparedness. It's a very big word in the military. They have to be prepared. So, if the Russians with their brand new missile attack us, they can't flounder. They can't say, who's going to go after this? What do we do? No, they are prepared. Not within months, not within weeks, not within hours, but minutes. They can be in the air. All the forces we need can be in the air. And these missiles have to be stopped. Preparedness. What we have here is Paul preparing the elders for what lies ahead. So first he says, serving the Lord with all humility. And then he says, with tears, with tears. He wants them to know, he wants them to be prepared for the heartaches that are ahead, the persecution that would inevitably face them. So the first thing he says is with tears. Like Jesus, Paul wept. Like Jesus, Paul had a compassionate heart. Like Jesus, Paul gave his life for the sheep. Paul says he knew what it was to weep with those who weep. He was a deeply empathetic man. He was not a cold man as some people try to portray him. A deeply empathetic man. Now, my friends, if you love people and you care for people and you're empathetic, you will weep. You will weep over broken marriages, divided homes, ugly conflicts among church members, untimely deaths, crippling sicknesses, dreadful addictions to pornography and alcohol and drugs. There's a heavy toll to play, um, pay emotionally for caring for the Lord's people. A friend of mine always uses this statement. It's so true. The fingerprints of the curse is on everything. I better repeat that in case you fell asleep. The fingerprints of the curse is on everything. No matter what we do on this earth, it's never perfect. It's never just all right. Everything is marred and hurt by the curse. There is a curse upon the earth. It's on your body. It's on your mind. It's on your relationships. It's on your family. It's on your job. It's all of society. You're in a world under the judgment of God. Rightfully so. It's only in His mercy. He doesn't just kick the whole thing to pieces. So, He wants them to know, I serve the Lord as a slave, with tears. It's much to weep about. In fact, three times he talked, right in this, right in this sermon, he talks about his tears, and they'll close the sermon with tears when he leaves. If you care for the Lord's people, there will be many things to make you weep because sadness. Now he served the Lord amidst persecution. Since the day Cain killed his godly brother Abel, this world and the God of this world has been at war with God, his prophets, his people, and his Messiah. This is the oldest continuous war on the planet. It's not in Iraq or Afghanistan. It's between the seed of the woman and the seed of Satan. And that war will go on until the Lord Jesus utterly, completely defeats his enemy and they become his footstool and they're thrown into the lake of fire. That will be the end of this war. He wants to prepare them. Jesus prepared us. He said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Jesus said it. No surprises here. 
Don't wake up and say, I never thought this would happen. I never thought they'd pass laws that would criminalize our beliefs. And if you're in China, you might wake up and say, I didn't know they'd imprison us. Didn't know they'd separate us a family. Paul's service for the Lord was marked by relentless persecution. He says in verse 19, by the plots of the Jews. This is organized plans, conspiracies to kill Paul. Remember those 40 men in the book of Acts? They would not eat or drink till they killed Paul. They didn't kill him. I often wondered, what happened to those guys? They starved to death? I doubt it. I doubt it. There's always around, ways around the law, right? Pharisees are good at that. Special dispensation. Well, we killed them spiritually. We tried our hardest. These are planned conspiracies to kill the apostle. And it was done by the people who were God's covenant people. His, his, uh, his own kin, his, his own Jewish people tried to kill him. And they were the people of the Old Testament. They were the people under the covenant that hurt much more. He expected the Gentiles to try to kill him. Paul is preparing them for persecution, organized plan persecution. Now, if you live in a uh, secular society, we're probably not going to be put in concentration camps or tortured or killed. But we will be discriminated against. I don't want to go into all the examples I can give, but for my own grandchildren in school, what they're facing, what people are facing in corporate world, if you say the wrong words, there's verbal ridicule, there's threats of lawsuits, labeled an intolerant bigot, your neighbors may not want to associate with you anymore, they may accuse you of misrepresenting Jesus' beautiful teaching on tolerance and flowers and world peace. There's no God of wrath. There's no God who judges. That, that's something from the dark ages. The world views our view of scripture and truth and gender and abortion and marriage and family totally unacceptable to the modern mind. Our values are scorned by the public arena, labeled as Bigotry, intolerance. Secularists have always disagreed with us. But something new has happened. I call it hostile, militant secularism that will not rest until they pass laws that will stop us from discriminating against anyone in their world, their values. That's right here now. It's right here now. Just depends where you live. It's a new hostility against our historic Christian beliefs. They will not allow us to believe these things without us facing criminal prosecution. It's happening in Canada. It's happening in some other places in the world. And it's coming here really fast. And in some parts of this country, it's here already. You may not be able to get a job with a good corporation unless you sign a waiver of what you believe about certain things sexually and gender-wise. 
It's a new hostility. Well, Paul's, Paul's warning us. Jesus warning us. That's normal. What we've experienced in America for 200 years is abnormal. Ask the Christians in Russia, Christians in China, any Arab country, what we've seen 2,000 years of history. That day's over. How do you prepare yourself? This is very important. How do you prepare yourself and how do you prepare others, particularly young people? Here's the way to do this. If you don't want to do it, I've done it for you. So, I mean, you get off the hook real easily. I've gone through the New Testament and written out every verse. I've categorized them. Teaches Jesus' teaching on persecution, Paul's teaching on persecution, Peter's teaching on persecution. All the verses written out for you on persecution and how to handle persecution and how to, how to view it eschatologically. It's all done for you. Now, if you want to do it yourself, that would be better. Or you can use these verses. You can get this online free. The way to handle persecution is to know what the Bible says about persecution. And you will be shocked how much it says. I was shocked. How much Jesus and Paul and Peter says about persecution. About suffering for the Lord. And how to view suffering. It's all there in your New Testament. It will help us as we face loss of jobs, neighborhood ridicule, Family members who don't want to talk to you anymore because they think you're a fanatic. It's all right there in your New Testament how to handle persecution and how to realize it's actually our glory in the end. And we're blessed of God. You will see that one of the major ideas is the end times. Eschatological. The Lord will judge all this And great glory awaits us for those who have stood with Christ and suffered with Christ. Payday is coming. But here's what's really important and what I'm concerned about. Our young people. I've talked to several of our teenagers, our own grandchildren, and some of the things they've told me, what they've experienced this last year in school, direct questions asked to them, what do you believe about the LBGQ community? Direct questions right to them. They didn't know what to say. Caught off guard. It's our fault. We need to teach our young people that persecution is part of the Christian life, part of discipleship. It's not abnormal. It's been abnormal that we got away with this for hundreds of years here in America. We need to teach them what the Bible says about persecution. Because it comes right from the lips of our Lord Himself. He said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. I just gave you one verse out of a number of verses. So, be prepared to teach these truths to others, especially our young people. Take this paper I've written and have it as a class. Have it as a couple sermons on Sunday morning. Be very interesting. The glorious things God says about those who suffer for Christ. Glory awaits you. Paul is preparing them from the inevitable that they will be persecuted. The church will be persecuted. He wants them prepared. No shocks. No surprises here. And how to deal with it. 
Next, serving the Lord by teaching and evangelizing all people. Now remember, he's holding his example up. He's preparing these men for what's ahead and what to do when he's, when he's not there. This is his final departure. His presence made a real difference because persecution normally went after him. But whenever Paul would leave a church, what would happen? The false teachers come flying right in. It's like they have special radar. Paul's gone. Let's go. In they go. Churches of Galatia, perfect example. Happens in Ephesians because we know later when he writes 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, the church is already in the death grip of false teachers. Already. Six, seven years. That's all. We're in a war. It's a real war, by the way. Ephesians chapter 6. You might not be able to see it directly with your eyeballs, but it's a real war with the, uh, with the forces of darkness. Put on the whole armor of God, by the way. All right. Now, serving the Lord by teaching and evangelizing all people. Let's look at this in verse 20. As a church, it's very important words to us here. Acts 20, verse 20. How? Now that picks up on what he said about my example. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. Notice this. Do not miss this. This is brilliant. Holding back nothing that was profitable. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. There was no aspect of the Christian doctrine that Paul neglected to teach. He did not omit the finer details of the gospel or adapt to the truth to the spirit of the age. Now, some churches avoid speaking of certain doctrines because they're difficult to understand and they can be very offensive. But what Paul is saying is that all that Christ taught me, I taught you. I did not hold back anything. These elders lacked nothing in their theological education. They went to the best seminary in the whole world. By the best seminary teacher who ever existed, the Apostle Paul. They got the whole plan. He even says that later, verse 27. Declaring all that is profitable. There was not one single point of doctrine that was profitable, helpful, beneficial to the elders that Paul held back. He emphasizes the same thing in verse 27. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, taught you the whole counsel of God. Twice he brings this up. There's a reason for that. And we see here, Paul's teaching was thorough and it was in depth. The elders could trust Paul precisely because he held back no information that was beneficial for their knowledge of God and Christ and the gospel. He didn't teach us his few favorite little pet subjects. There'd be no surprises after he left. Now, why is this important? Let me tell you why. After Paul would leave a church, it would always be a crisis moment when Paul left. He was the great defender of the faith. Tells us that in Philippians chapter 1. For the defense of the faith. Defense of the gospel. Paul would leave and Satan would send in his agents right away. Now what these agents say is something like this and they say the same thing in the last 100, 200 years. Paul gave you the gospel, but it wasn't the whole gospel. He didn't tell you everything. We have the rest of the gospel. 
We've got the full gospel. You don't have it. We have it. You need us to be saved. You ever hear of something like that? There goes my notes. Must have got a little too excited there. Need to calm down a little bit. This is what happens in all these false teachings. The false teacher says, yes, but I have more. You don't have our book. You don't have an angel who gave you the rest of the gospel. Paul, when he left, says, no, you have everything. I kept back nothing that was profitable. There's no part of the gospel you do not have. You have any questions about that? Look at the book of Romans. Book of Romans lays out the full gospel for us. It's amazing. That's why in our discipleship, we need to make sure we are teaching the book of Romans uh, for people who will go on for the Lord or discipling people. You, they need to know Romans. It's the one book where he systematically takes us through all aspects of the gospel and then all aspects of the Christian life. It's all there. So, there's a very important statement. I didn't hold back anything. Anything that was profitable, beneficial, you got it. Anyone comes and they say, but, don't listen to them. I never held back anything. See that in Galatians chapter 1. This is the importance of teaching the whole counsel of God. Verse 27. As a church, we need to make sure we are teaching the whole counsel of God. Not just little aspects, little favorite subjects. Once you listen to Al Mohler from his book, The Gathering Storm, Secularism, Culture, and Church, listen to what he writes. It's very interesting about about teaching. The secular age exerts a subtle but constant influence on churches and Christians. TV, movies, college, advertisements, neighborhood. If not careful, churches will look less and less like churches and more and more like secular world around them. In a sense, liberal theology begins to slowly replace orthodox faith. Or, in other cases, churches simply stop talking about and teaching important truths revealed in the Bible. Now, listen to this final statement. The failure to teach truth eventually leads to failure of Christ's people even to know the truth. There is great ignorance and illiteracy out there. To many of our young people, the Bible is a foreign book. They know more about the the stars of Hollywood than they know about the patriarchs of the Bible. I guarantee you that. I've asked plenty of questions to young people, and they know nothing. It's shocking. At Wheaton College, they do this entrance test. Most of these kids have been raised in Christian homes, and every year they see the test go down. They know less and less about the Bible. And a professor at Moody Bible Institute I know very well, was telling me he teaches a class in contemporary issues and he says those kids almost inevitably give the world's answers and not the Bible's answers. They've been so secularized already. The Bible seems like a farm book. In fact, who would want to believe this old book when it doesn't agree with what everyone else agrees with? We must teach the whole counsel of God and not hold that back anything. Interesting Secularists 
propagate their godless humanistic philosophy, they don't, they don't, uh, uh, get embarrassed about it or apologize. They're coming at us with everything possible. Why should we be afraid not to teach the whole counsel of God? It's the greatest story ever told. There's no other story like it. Salvation, eternal life, sins forgiven. It's a message from God directly. Hosea said to the priests of Israel, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. What an indictment. Now, teaching both in public and house to house. In public and to house to house. He further emphasizes the thoroughness of his teaching ministry. Paul reminded his fellow workers that he taught them in the in a public forum and he taught them in a private setting. In public. Acts 19. The Hall of Tyrannus. Paul's ministry was characterized by open public teaching so that all could hear it. It wasn't an esoteric message for the Illuminati or the small group where people become very proud. We've got, we've got the truth. No one else. No. Paul publicly pronounced the gospel for all who would hear. The offer is offered to all people and it can be understood. You're a sinner. God provides a savior. Is that hard to understand? You might reject it, but there it is. So, there's nothing hidden about the message. It's not esoteric. It's not just for the initiated. It's for all men and women. It's a universal message for every nation, every tongue, every tribe, that people will be at the throne of God. Then, this is one of my favorites here. Paul taught not only publicly, but from house to house. In more private, intimate meetings. This is a wonderful way to teach the Bible and to evangelize. In fact, the church was born in the home. Churches met in homes. And what more natural way to get the gospel out than a neighbor or a relative opens their home for, for a Bible study or, or to hear the gospel. The home is informal. It's relaxed atmosphere. There's more interaction with the teacher. There's a, a building of personal relationships. It's comfortable. It's the very natural place for family members to go and friends and neighbors to meet together and to hear a message or to study together. Paul and the apostles, look at Acts chapter 5, use the home as a meeting place to teach. He taught from house to house. He taught at the hall of Tyrannus. In other words, he was a very creative teacher. He used every means possible to spread the gospel. He was creative. He was flexible. He was a bold proclaimer of the gospel. And we also should be resourceful and thorough and forthright in the dissemination of the greatest story ever told. I just want to make this comment here and then I will uh, be done for this evening and then we meet tomorrow evening again. Christianity from the very beginning was a preaching, teaching movement. Jesus, when people saw Jesus and heard Jesus, they said, teacher. And when he left this earth, he told his disciples, teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. Disciple all nations. And part of that mandate is teaching everything of Jesus' teaching. 
and then baptizing. It's part of the Great Commission. Paul's ministry was a word-centered ministry. And why is that? Because he was given an authoritative, urgent message from God. Remember what Nicodemus said to Jesus? You're a teacher, come from God. Paul didn't make this up. He wasn't just a clever rabbi. He makes that very clear. He received the message. And he proclaimed the message that he received from directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. Christianity was a preaching, teaching movement from the very beginning. Word center. It was a message of salvation and of God and Christ and fulfillment. Think of 1 John 2.25. And this is the promise that he made to us. Eternal life. Is there anybody here who has a better message than eternal life? No? Okay. Got that solved. This is the promise that He made to us, eternal life. That's the message. We are offering eternal life, sins forgiven, fellowship with God, the indwelling Holy Spirit to make you new, adoption into God's family. What a message. James Orr said, if there is a religion in the world that exalts the office of teaching, it's safe to say that's the religion of Jesus Christ. And that's because we have a message. Well, here's the message in its uh, final appeal. Repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a brief, nice summary of the gospel message viewed from its final appeal. Notice the gospel requires a response. What's the proper response? Repentance towards God. Now, why does he say repentance towards God? Because the human race has grievously sinned against the Creator. How have they grievously sinned against their Creator? Romans 1, idolatry. We are idolatrous. Idolaters. We love idols. We have that in polytheism. Many gods. The Egyptians had over 500 gods. When Israel came into the land, all the countries and uh, nations around had many, many gods. And, and one of the great problems of Israel was they fell prey to these little tiny calves, little gold calves. I mean, ridiculous looking things. And to reject the infinite personal God who spoke in the universe came into existence. We've grievously sinned against the Creator by setting up idols. And then the second thing we know from Romans 1, and that is sexual immorality. Isn't it interesting how today the sexual revolutionaries are exalting this whole new lifestyle. It's a dark, sinful lifestyle that deals with our sexuality and gender. Isn't that interesting? Throughout all of human history, this has been a great temptation. And behind it is Satan's lies. So mankind has to repent of this. And then faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. A lot in those words. A lot in those words. Just the very names. Lord, Jesus, Messiah. This is the positive side. The negative side is the repentance. The positive side is you must believe, trust. Put your whole soul's trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. The whole message is in His name, by the way. He's salvation. He's the long-promised Messiah. So that's the response. Repentance towards God, 
faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. As we proclaim the person and work of Jesus Christ, people are to believe in him. Now, this will lead us tomorrow night to serving the Lord wholeheartedly. One of the greatest statements in all the New Testament on dedication to Christ. Let us close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this magnificent sermon. And we pray that we'll have a deeper understanding of it. As we realize these are your very own words. And it's to all of us in this room. May we understand and believe and follow. In our Lord's name, amen.